presenting this month's special series, Focus on Sports Medicine. We're talking to experts in the field about sports and exercise-related injuries and the latest advances in diagnosis, treatment, and prevention to help your patients stay active. The National Football League has placed its strictest rules yet on managing concussions. What is the medical profession to make of such a policy, and what are its broader implications for the players, the league, and the future of medical research? You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Bruce Japson, the healthcare reporter with the Chicago Tribune, and joining me today is Dr. Julian Bales. Dr. Bales is a founding member of the Brain Injury Research Institute and a professor and chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery at West Virginia University School of Medicine. Dr. Bales is a recognized leader in the field of neurosurgery and both the short and long-term impact of brain injury on cognitive function. He is the former team physician of the Pittsburgh Steelers and has been a team physician in either the NFL or an NCAA Division I program for more than two decades. He is the medical director of the Center for Study of Retired Athletes based at the University of North Carolina. And Dr. Bales received his medical degree from LSU School of Medicine in New Orleans and completed his neurosurgical residency at Northwestern University Medical Center in Chicago. He joins us today from his offices in Morganstown, West Virginia. Dr. Julian Bales, welcome to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Bruce, great to be here with you. Well, it's great to have you here, given all that's been in the news in the last few months on this whole NFL concussion policies and so forth. Give us a little bit of background for our listeners who might not be familiar with this and, and your role in these policies. Well, you know, a lot has happened. First of all, we start off by saying that in the last decade, we think there's more research, more known about so-called minor or mild brain injury than ever before. And concussion is another term that's commonly accepted for a mild traumatic brain injury. It's just now we we think that we're no pretty sure there's no such thing as a mild brain injury, that especially if someone is subjected to repeated mild brain injury, they do have a, a fairly significant risk. They could have after effects as they get older. And so it's interesting, too, that the research, it just seems now it's heightened. I mean, why is that? I mean, is it because there have been people become incapacitated as NFL players and they're famous and people see them? Or how, why is all of a sudden it seemed like this just coming out now? Well, I think there have been some fairly monumental discoveries or findings. One, one is that we know now that the brain, when it's injured, has a period of several days that it doesn't, it doesn't utilize glucose correctly. The cells don't work right. Now, most athletes or most people, that's reversible. That goes away. We also know there's probably some tearing of fiber, some injury to the brain connections. Also, the brain attempts to repair that. Most of the time, it probably can. In 2003, my colleague Ben Adamalu reported the first case of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, chronic brain damage, and that was in the former Pittsburgh Steeler Hall of Famer NFL great 17-year NFL player Mike Webster. Since then, he and I have gone on to study the brains of 20 athletes, and all of them who had very similar failures in business and failures in their relationships and marriage and depression and suicide, in every case that we found that sort of behavioral or clinical expression, we found extensive brain damage of an Alzheimer type, the collection of tau protein, but it's not Alzheimer's disease. 
it's a different form that affects a, a small but important percentage of former contact sport athletes. And that's really interesting because just the broader implications to, to everybody, I mean, it can make sense. I mean, if you, you know, maybe we're in a car accident, can it be a single event like that? Or what, what are sort of the broader implications of these NFL studies? Well, I think that the broader implications are people that are exposed to especially repetitive injury repetitive, quote, mild injury, non-lethal injury, but injury that they survive sets the stage. Now, we also know there's a greater interest now in the military exposure that they have, in many cases, because of these explosions, uh, these improvised explosive devices, IEDs, roadside bombs, that they get concussive effects. Some are coming back from, from Iran and Iraq with 13, 15 concussive events. But the only other area that's happened to is contact sports. So I think it's a discovery of what can happen in the brain metabolically, anatomically, and then the worst-case scenario of this chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I think that that has led to the momentum. And then remember the New York Times reported in October that the NFL's own commission study done by the University of Michigan said that the retired NFL players in their 30s and 40s had 19 times higher risk of having Alzheimer's or or memory dementia problems at a very early age. That really is fascinating because I think a lot of people think that when you're young, you're invincible and so forth. And, I, and, and you think about maybe the people decades ago who were not studied, who may have slipped into these categories and they, they either weren't treated or people didn't know what was wrong. Is that what people find? I think so. And we found, we've studied, this. you mentioned the Center for Study of Retired Athletes, which is at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm the medical director, Dr. Kevin Gutzowitz is the center director. He and I reported, uh, we thought, two very important studies. We looked at over 3,000 retired NFL players, and this was research supported by the NFL Players Association. We found that if they had had three or more concussions during their NFL career that they knew about, they had a five times higher risk of having cognitive problems when they were in retirement years, and a triple incidence of depression. The only risk factor was, again, three or more concussions. So I think it is. it has been a culmination of a lot of findings. The work that we found in the brain autopsy has been corroborated by other specialists, other experts in the field. And hopefully now this is going to lead to an acceptance that repetitive so-called minor brain injury can lead to chronic effects. It can affect their career. It can affect the time they're playing, and it can affect them later in life. And so hopefully we're going to get now into more of an acceptance of that and a prevention mode. Well, that is important, too, for a lot of our physicians, listeners, and people in the primary care fields. I mean, it's important for them because they can start to ask these type of questions. Is that kind of what uh, specialists such as yourself would recommend? Well, I I think so. I think that to be aware of it. You mentioned, you know, the players maybe slipped through the tracks years ago. There was a largely ignored uh, report in the Detroit Free Press by Bill Dowd two years ago that said of the surviving I think 1959 Detroit Lions team, a third of the players already had been diagnosed as having Alzheimer's. So a third of people in their late 60s or early 70s having Alzheimer's, that's uh, really remarkable. So hopefully it does increase awareness and importance of past history and in working up these sorts of cognitive problems or even depression in early retirement years. 
Well, if you're just joining us, or even if you're new to our channel, you're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160. I'm Bruce Japson, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Julian Bales. He is a noted brain injury researcher out of the West Virginia University School of Medicine, and we're talking about some work that he has done relative to NFL players and and sort of the broader implications of brain injuries. And Dr. Bales, we know that there is no treatment that is going to reverse the course of Alzheimer's. But if we find out that people who are brain injured end up suffering Alzheimer's, could they be the benefactors of treatments that are developed? Or is it a different kind of cause that that would not help them? Well, what we think so far, the leading possibility for for my work and what I've seen is the omega-3 fatty acids, particularly DHA, which is the main structural fatty acid of the brain, it makes up 97% of the omega fats in the brain, 93% of the retina. We've had very good success. In fact, at UNC Chapel Hill, we're currently doing a big study with retired NFL players currently already having cognitive problems. I think DHA is helpful for the early stages of Alzheimer's or cognitive problems. As it gets later in the course of the disease, of course, really, I think nothing works. Is this a patient pool that you know, the pharmaceutical industry or researchers will pay more attention to in their study? I imagine so. And if you consider, you know, the 200 million soccer players worldwide in the world's most popular sport who who do have cognitive problems and, and head injuries from time to time, the implications are, are large. And I think that healthcare practitioners should look at it in that way. Well, that is an interesting point because I know I've heard some of your colleagues, and this is the same in a lot of other conditions, is that a lot of young people are not studied. And let's face it, if you play football in the NFL, you certainly played for, for 10 or 15 years before you got there. And so would this be important then for a primary care physician when they're you know, asking questions of kids in their physicals? Should they be asking about contact sports and brain injuries? I think they should. In fact, we have discovered, Ben and Amalo and I, a, a case of chronic traumatic encephalopathy in a, in a high school football player. He played six years. So absolutely, I think that exposure or repetitive exposure is a very important part, especially if they're appropriate symptoms that are concerning. Has it been studied that well or that broad, or are these just the anecdotal studies that you mentioned? I think this is the early stage and an increasing awareness and understanding of what this so-called minor head injury can be. The brain injury, if repetitive, has a totally different spectrum than we previously appreciated, and it can be the younger age group, and certainly we all know of you know, high school contact sport athletes who end up suffering in their schoolwork and maybe even in their personality and with post-concussion syndrome symptoms. So, yeah, I think it's part of a greater awareness that uh, we're discovering now. And I know some people might be listening out there and say, well, okay, so you're not going to be able to keep young people off the field. There is no treatment that's going to reverse the course of, of Alzheimer's. But if I'm hearing you, the the important thing is for the prevention. Tell us a little bit about what they've done in the NFL and perhaps what you could see might be adopted down the road as far as if somebody has a concussion, what they should be doing. Well, you know, the NFL has recently come out with expanded guidelines or uh, stricter concussion management. And, you know, it took them a while to get on board with this, I think. They had thought they had made a lot of changes, and they had. But for instance, though, the guidelines just released recently show that if a player has any symptoms of concussion, or if they were knocked out, 
even briefly, that they do not return to that game or that practice and that they are assessed. And they also recommend in their guidelines that the player has a normal neurological examination, a normal neuropsychological testing, and that they've been cleared to return to play by both a team physician and an independent neurological or neurosurgical consultant. And they go on to say the importance of the players being candid and forthcoming with the symptoms, since many times they can't be seen. And if you think about how long it took us to get to that point in the NFL, my guess is that there is no policy like this in college or high school. Well, the NCAA has just recently met, and I met with them, and we discussed changes at that level as well. And so I think there, I think at the high school level and all the way down to to youth football, I think you're going to see some instances of following suit on this, and uh, rightly so. So I think this is a movement which has begun, which is going to protect the body's most important organ, the brain, and put that forth and remove the old aphorism that it's just a ding or that it's a minor injury. I've been saying for a decade now, you know, you can ice your ankle, but you can't ice your brain. You only got one of them, and it's your most viable asset. So hopefully the movement will continue, and I think it is, to trickle down at all levels of play. Now, how are the diagnostic tests? I mean, you're an expert in this, and if a primary care physician is listening out there or, you know, even a maybe even a parent, what should they do and what should they be looking for? I mean, are your general community hospitals set up to do this or do they need other things? They probably are going to need some more resources than a community hospital. Now, remember, one of the problems is with concussion, the brain scan, whether it's a CAT scan or MRI, is typically normal. That has led, in many cases, to a misleading of the athletes, the parents, and all their associates, coaches, and others, that this was not an injury. I mean, you don't expect bleeding or swelling of the brain with concussion. You don't see it on scans ordinarily. 90% of the time, the athlete is not knocked out. So it's a subtle diagnosis based on symptoms and an appropriate history. And that's a very important thing for practitioners in the community to remember. If the symptoms are, they're usually self-limited in a few weeks. If they're not, again, you treat the symptoms. There's not any good medication. The symptoms are ordinarily headaches, vertigo, maybe some memory problems, and just not performing well. And that normally just takes time to resolve. We sometimes refer them for neuropsychological evaluation, but that's pretty much documenting the obvious. Well, with that, I'd like to thank Dr. Julian Bales, who's been our guest. He is a founding member of the Brain Injury Research Institute and professor and chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery at West Virginia University School of Medicine. And we've been talking about managing concussions. I'm Bruce Japson. Of the Chicago Tribune, I've been your host, and you've been listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on the air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. And I want to thank you today for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Sports Medicine. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.